Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, it became a mainstream option thanks to the pandemic, but it also opened a Pandora's box of tax implications. Now the National Taxpayers Union Foundation has created an index of the most and least burdensome state-by-state laws for remote workers. We'll take a closer look. Also this morning, part of the Hancock Leadership Program involves taking on a service project to benefit the entire community. This year's class has chosen to honor veterans and fallen service members. We'll learn more. And we have details on upcoming shows and programming in the month of February at the Marathon Center for the Performing Arts. Heather Clough will be here to tell us what's happening. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Monday, January 30th, 2023. Forty-nine days until spring. Now we are counting it down, counting it down here this morning. So uh, this was uh, kind of interesting, uh, and it is a big, uh, big thing. Start the program with the most interesting and buzzworthy stories uh, of the morning. The the things that you need to know. The first things you need to know right out of the gate. And I think this is definitely one of those things. The oldest living United States military veteran to survive the attack on Pearl Harbor is marking a major milestone today. Joseph Eskenazi, E-S-K-E-N-A-Z-I, Eskenazi, Joseph Eskenazi was an army private stationed in Hawaii when the Japanese attacked On December 7th, 1941, and today he turns 105 years old. So, happy, happy birthday, and so happy that he is still around to uh, celebrate uh, on this uh, 30th day of January. Final Monday of the first month of the year. So, I wanted to uh, make mention of that. Uh, Make sure that we... uh, Recognize him appropriately. This was kind of interesting. I saw this on the uh, Newswire, and I got to say, I am not a big Kanye West fan. All right? Uh, so I'll I'll open with that. But I saw this story, and I'm thinking, I'm kind of on Kanye's side here. Kanye West is the suspect in a battery investigation after allegedly throwing a woman's phone into the street After an encounter in uh, California, Newberry Park near Los Angeles, the incident first reported on Friday. Authorities say the uh, music star approached a woman's car and accused her of following him and filming him on on her phone and taking video, following him around and, and videoing her. She did not deny it. She said, Kanye, you're a celebrity. That was her excuse. Kanye, you're a celebrity. And apparently that was the wrong answer. He grabbed her phone and threw it into the street. Now, it says here in the report, it is unclear whether this woman was a professional photographer, whether she was a member of the paparazzi or just an average citizen taking photos and videos. And no arrests have been made. The woman was not injured. It was just a verbal confrontation more than anything, although he did obviously... As you said, grab her phone and throw it into the street. So she she needs a new phone. Uh, Video of the interaction being reviewed by investigators, though. And I'm thinking, what charges? Okay, fine, he shouldn't have grabbed her phone and thrown it into the street. But uh, I got to think that 
if it were me, I would be a little annoyed as well. But Kanye, you're a celebrity. Well, he's still a person. I mean, if you or I were to do that to just an average person, we would be the ones that would be charged. But somehow, because he's a famous person, quote-unquote famous person, then it's okay to follow him around and take photos and videos and and all of that. Um, Some would say, oh, that's the price of fame. No, that's the cost of fame, is that people do stupid things like that. And at the end of the day, he's just a person. Don't don't do that. I mean, that's just, that's rude. And uh, I think I'm on Kanye's side on this one. Uh, like I said, I'm not a big Kanye fan, but I think uh, I, I get where he's coming from on this. Probably shouldn't have thrown the woman's phone into the street, but maybe she'll learn not do that again. But anyway, we'll see where that goes. Uh, a couple of other uh, interesting items here among the first things you need to know on this Monday morning. On Friday, the Food and Drug Administration proposed loosening restrictions for blood donors. Um... And this dates back all the way to the 1980s that gay and bisexual men uh, have been prohibited from donating blood ever since the onset of the AIDS epidemic. Um, There's this great fear that uh, individuals who engage in behaviors that are more that put them at greater risk of contracting HIV been prohibited from donating blood. And uh, now they're going to change that. Instead, an individual risk-based screening would be conducted. The new questionnaire would allow anyone, regardless of gender or sexual orientation, who has been monogamous within the last three months, to donate. Uh, Maintaining a safe and adequate supply of blood and blood products in the U.S. is paramount for the FDA. This is according to Commissioner Robert M. Califf. This proposal is for an individual risk assessment, regardless of gender or sexual orientation, will enable us to continue using the best science to do so. To do so, meaning to maintain a safe and adequate supply of blood and blood products. So I have to admit, this was something I did not even realize was still a thing. I remember back in the 80s when they imposed that restriction... And uh, I did not realize that it was still a thing until I saw this uh, story in the news. I was like, really? They're still banned from from doing that? You, I mean, we can screen for this now and we uh, can protect the blood supply. I don't know why there would be uh, any reason uh, for that. So, uh, so that's good. That's progress, I think. Uh, let's see what else is going on here among the first things you need to know this morning. Valentine's Day right around the corner, coming up here in just a couple of weeks. Have you made your dinner reservations? My wife did uh, the other day. She told me, I made dinner reservations. (laughs) All right. (laughs) She said, you're taking me out to dinner. All right. Um, If you are still looking for love this Valentine's Day, according to the Thriving Center of Psychology. (laughs) What a name. The thriving center of psychology. The best place to find love is on the East Coast. Cities with the highest number of singles include Richmond, Virginia at number one, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, number two, Buffalo, New York, number three. And they're looking for someone to keep them warm. 
uh, Newark, New Jersey, <laughs> and Cincinnati, Ohio, number five on the uh, list with the highest number of singles. So Cincinnati, uh, you'd be in pretty good shape to uh, to find someone special. I think Detroit is like number eight or number nine, something like that. So you can either head north or south. And uh, you should be good to go. U.S. Census data suggests that Minneapolis and Atlanta have a large number of bachelors. If you're looking for a husband, if you're looking for all the single ladies, Buffalo is your place. Of the more than 1,000 people surveyed, 75% believe that Valentine's Day is overrated. <laughs> Which may explain, guys, why you're still single. Um, although 24% of single women are planning on celebrating with a twist this Valentine's Day. They're having a Galentine's Day out. <laughs> An evening out with their gal pals. Galentine's Day on February 14th. Survey respondents ages 18 to 83 with an average age of 35 on that. I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, let's see. And a couple of other uh, items here among the first things that you need to know this morning, if you have auto insurance through State Farm or Progressive, you better be careful what vehicle you buy. If you're in the market for a new car and you are insured through State Farm or Progressive, you will want to know that uh, those two automotive insurers, and maybe even more to follow, I don't know, but these are the two that I'm aware of, are refusing to ensure certain Kia and Hyundai models because they lack anti-theft devices that are common in today's cars. Um, this is according to a report in CNN, both State Farm and Progressive confirmed that they no longer will write policies for some Kia and Hyundai models manufactured between 2015 and 2019. You recall that uh, a few weeks ago, there were videos posted on social media showing people how to start those vehicles without any keys. Uh, instead, using a phone charger or USB cable to bypass the electronic security. And um, the trend has prompted kids across the country, not just kids, I guess, but people across the country to try and steal these Kia and Hyundai vehicles to go for a joyride. Uh, the manufacturers are working on it, but they still haven't come up with a fix. And until they do, State Farm and Progressive say, nope, they're not going to insure those cars. Oh, wow. That is... I, I tell you what, um, that there is nothing worse than getting a new car and calling up your insurance company and your insurance company say, I'm sorry, we're not going to insure that vehicle. And boy, then you are stuck. So something to keep in mind there. And uh, finally, among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to start your day. This is a new study from the Pew Research Center. Something to to think about the biggest concern among parents with respect to their kids is their mental health. The Pew Research Center tallied more than 3,700 U.S. parents last year. 40% of the respondents said that they are extremely or very worried that their kids will, will struggle with anxiety or depression. 35% uh, felt the same about their kids being bullied. Concerns over drugs and alcohol and gun violence were further down the list at less than 25%. Of all of the things 
that parents can worry about when it comes to their kids, their mental health, anxiety, depression, and being bullied. Kind of interesting there. Uh, just something to, uh, to think about, something to chew on this morning. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Monday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. It were WTOL 11 weather, mostly cloudy today with a high of 30, partly to mostly cloudy tonight, a low of 15. The Finley Police Department says a driver fled from police in their vehicle and then on foot. The police department says an officer stopped the vehicle at Southwest Street and West Harden Street for not having a visible license plate at around 1230 Saturday morning. After an initial interaction, police say the driver fled from the traffic stop and turned westbound onto West Lincoln Street. After a short pursuit, police say the vehicle attempted to make a turn and slid through a residential front yard in the 500 block of West Lincoln Street, nearly crashing into a house in a parked vehicle. Police say the driver then got out of the vehicle and fled northbound on foot. Get more on the website. Survivors, law enforcement, and victims advocates gathered for Ohio's fourth annual Human Trafficking Summit. Ohio ranks among the top 10 states for the number of calls made to the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost says Ohio towns have to communicate about what's going on in their communities. WTOL 11's Amanda Fay reporting. Get more on the website. The new Chief Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court took her ceremonial oath of office. Chief Justice Sharon Kennedy's journey to becoming the state's top judge started in Butler County, where she served as a Hamilton police officer. This is not where I thought I would be when I was 23 years old. At that time, I thought I could become a chief, but I thought I would be the chief of a police department. Kennedy served in domestic relations court in Butler County before she was first elected to the state Supreme Court in 2012. She defeated Democrat Jennifer Bruner in last November's election. Steve Vaughn, ONN. The Humane Society and SPCA of Hancock County is reminding dog owners that time's running out to renew their dog licenses for 2023. Officials say Tuesday is the last day to purchase your Hancock County dog licenses. Dogs three months old and older are required to have a dog license in Hancock County. They can be purchased through the Hancock County Dog Warden at 4550 Fostoria Avenue in Finley and also at the Hancock County Auditor's Office at the Hancock County Courthouse. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Matt Demchek for 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. So here is an interesting statistic. Before the pandemic, the number of Americans working remotely was roughly 9 million. Since the onset of the pandemic, that number has jumped to 27.6 million. And many employers have continued that policy to allow workers to work from home either all or at least part of the time for the foreseeable future. Now, you'll recall when that happened, we mentioned that this practice might open up a whole Pandora's box of tax implications to deal with. Well, the National Taxpayers Union Foundation is out with its first-ever Remote Obligations and Mobility, or Rome Index, which ranks how burdensome each state's taxes are to mobile workers. Andrew Wilford is Interstate Commerce Initiative Director for the NTUF. Now, Andrew, first of all, explain what criteria you used to make this determination. How was this list compiled? Yeah, so really it's a, it's a combination of the, the factors that affect remote and, and mobile workers, as you said. So, um, you know, these are things like filing thresholds, so the amount of days that you have to work 
um, in a state before that state expects you to file an income tax return. Um, for a lot of states, uh, including Ohio, it's the very first day, the very first day that you work in the state. So you, you go to visit uh, family and you, you do some work while you're, while you're there. Um, technically, you, you are now responsible for filing uh, an income tax return. Mm. Um, also, uh, withholding thresholds. So very similar to, uh, to filing thresholds, but for your employer. Um, how long do you as the employee have to work in a state before your employer is expected to withhold on your behalf? Um, then uh, we have reciprocity agreements. So these are, Ohio has a bunch of these. So um, you might, Ohio listeners might be familiar with the idea that if you commute into another state, um, you normally just have to pay Ohio taxes. Mm-hmm. In much of the rest of the country, um, you you would have to file in, in the state you're commuting into as well as the state that you live in. And then you would have to claim a credit against uh, the taxes paid to another state. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of factors that can really, uh, that can really complicate uh, what, how, how, how difficult it is to file taxes uh, in a state or that can, that can make it easier. Yeah. So the theory is that states which impose income tax obligations, the more complicated they are for remote workers, they're going to be at a competitive disadvantage for employers that increasingly rely on remote workers. Absolutely. I mean, if you're an employer and uh, you, you right now, you have to be very cognizant of where your employees are working. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the, especially things like withholding thresholds, um, that, you know, a little bit of uh, uh, a, a short trip somewhere and yeah. a working vacation uh, means, means uh, new, new tax filing obligations. For you. Which uh, also has become uh, very popular as well. And as you mentioned, it's not just with respect to the burden that they place, uh, that these laws place on employees, but the more direct component with respect to the tax obligations that some states place on businesses directly with respect to the remote workers that they employ. Absolutely. So based on the state tax codes as they exist currently, what are the best and worst states for remote work and remote workers? And where does Ohio rank overall? The very best states for remote workers are, unsurprisingly, the nine states that have no income tax. Um, That makes it very simple. Sure. Uh, But besides those, uh, the best state is actually West Virginia. Um, West Virginia has decent filing thresholds. Um, It has a lot of reciprocity agreements, and it has a very high um, withholding threshold of greater than 30 days. Um, So they they really do very well. Um, Other states that do well, North Dakota, Illinois, Minnesota and Wisconsin are all in the top five of states that um, that uh, don't that that do have an individual income tax. Mm-hmm. Um, Ohio actually ranks number eighteen, so it uh, it does fairly well. Ohio, as I mentioned, has a lot of reciprocity agreements, so right. those really help. But it could do a lot better on the filing and withholding thresholds. Um, so those are those are pretty low. Not the bottom you might might surprise you. So the the, the absolute bottom is Delaware. Um, and, uh, followed closely by Nebraska. Both these states have what's called a convenience of the employer rule, um, where they say that if you previously commuted into the state, so say Delaware, you previously commuted into Delaware, and then you switch to working remotely, um, 
for a Delaware-based employer, but you might never spend any time in Delaware during the year. Uh, Delaware says that unless that switch to remote work was done out of absolute necessity, um, that you still owe Delaware taxes. Hmm. So that that is you know very counterintuitive. Um, yeah, and it it can create the potential for double taxation. So Nebraska does that as well. Um, New York, which is also ranked very low, uh, does that. Um, so these are really, really burdensome rules. Hmm. Um, Ohio actually has local jurisdictions that do things like this, um, and has been caught up in a lot of court cases, um, because it has, because local jurisdictions do it. It doesn't do it at a state level, but, um, I know, you know, for example, there was a big case lately that Cleveland lost, um, over its effort to impose, you know, these, uh, convenience the employer rules on Pennsylvania taxpayers hmm. who had who had stopped yeah. commuting during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, so you know that's that's a big issue right now. Now I would imagine that initially when we saw this remote work dynamic shift, uh, partly because it came on so suddenly, this maybe wasn't much on anyone's radar either for employers or employees. But the more common it becomes, the more both sides are going to factor it into their equation fair to say? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, um, the what I mentioned about those filing thresholds might have come as a surprise to some people because, yeah. you know, I think uh, many people do uh, travel and work and they, they don't file an income tax return. Um, but that's not because you're not supposed to. It's just because um, these, uh, for, for the most part, uh, state departments of revenue haven't really tried that hard to uh, to to check on on you know average taxpayers yeah they, they tend to focus on very wealthy and uh, very high profile people um, but but the more know, people sharing the more people who are doing this people, yeah the the more absolutely. it becomes an issue and also and also you know it's much easier to do it now if they want to than it would have been uh, a few decades ago you know your phone data is always showing where you are uh, you're always good posting point. on social media where you are yeah. so good um, point. if they if they decide they want to do it that it would be a lot easier so are you aware of any states that are actively looking to revise their tax code one way or the other to reflect this growing and by all indications lasting trend either to uh, get more income or make their states more friendly uh, in, in this respect for uh, businesses that rely on remote workers yeah I think there's been some there's been some good momentum we're hoping that this uh, that this report starts to, to push it a little more um, there's currently a bill in Nebraska that would uh, that would set 30-day thresholds on on filing and withholding so mm-hmm. um, you know that that's that would be a very very significant improvement for Nebraska, which is ranked number forty nine on right. the Rome Index right now. Um, but you know, the we've seen states like Illinois, Vermont um, recently raise their withholding thresholds. Um, so yeah, I think that there's there's definitely appetite for um, for states to that, that recognize that these are important things to. Uh, to remote and mobile workers and um, that, that want to be competitive. Um, so, um, but on the other hand, I think that there's going to be states who view uh, remote work as a threat um, and who uh, see sure. only the, uh, the, the potential to lose taxpayers who now have, mm-hmm. you know, more agency and where they can live. Right. Um, you know, 
why why live in a high tax state if you can do the same job but uh in a in a state that you know is much more affordable that's always the balancing act and i think this adds uh, such an interesting dynamic uh with respect to states having com- to compete generally historically you think of states competing with neighboring states and now uh states have to take into account the the tax state tax laws uh pretty much everywhere for this very reason and i i think it also you know states we have to look at the um, the at the full picture and see that you know states are able to really aggressively enforce tax obligations on mm-hmm. out-of-state taxpayers. Um, it really does take it takes away a lot of that taxpayer agency that I mentioned because yeah. you know states no longer have to worry about uh, people deciding that they've they've had enough of the you know ever increasing tax obligations. Um, then they can just tax whoever they want. So. Um, you know, I think that's that's really going to be the battle of the next uh, the next decade. Again, our thanks to Andrew Wilford, Interstate Commerce Initiative Director for the National Taxpayers Union Foundation, for joining us this morning. Andrew, before we let you go, if folks want to learn more about this Rome Index and dig into the numbers some more, where would they find that? They can find it at ntu.org/rome. R O A M. Thank you very much. So as you may know, because we've talked about it in the past, some of these projects, part of the Hancock Leadership Program involves taking on a service project to benefit the community at large. And this year's class has chosen to honor veterans and fallen service members. Uh, joining us this morning are uh, product project managers, uh, Kia Egbert and uh, Tom James, from the uh, Hancock Leadership uh, class, uh, this year's Hancock Leadership class. Thank you both for uh, dropping by, uh, especially braving the weather here this morning. We certainly appreciate it. Yeah, good morning. Um, so, first of all, tell us a little bit about uh, this uh, program and how you landed on this particular project. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the project we are working on is called Hancock County Taps, Honoring Those Who Served. And uh, as a class, we actually had quite a few presentations from around the community come in and chat with us. Um, But this one really resonated for us, um, being able to honor local veterans. Um, We have a couple of veterans in our group ourselves and a lot of family members who are veterans. So it just really kind of struck a chord for us. So uh, Hancock County taps uh, through this project. What's the goal here? The goal is to um, work to ensure that whenever possible, every military funeral in Hancock County includes a live rendition of taps which, as you may know, is the ceremonial bugle call that signals the end of service. Yeah, everybody is familiar with uh, with TAPS. And for anyone who has uh, been to a military funeral, it is uh, mm-hmm. quite uh, stirring. And it's, it's a moment that you just don't capture if it's recorded or, you know, something like that. Absolutely. It's just so so impressive to be able to hear a live rendition that's played well. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so how do you go about making this happen then? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we, we kind of have three key words that we're throwing out into the community. So we have give, play, and honor. Um, first is give. Make, make a donation to help us support this program. Um, all the financial gifts that we bring in are going to be used to support program resources, um, such as buying bugles, um, buying a veterans memorial plaque, and then we're going to have an inaugural event um, to kick off this program here later in the year. Okay. Um, and so folks can go to the uh, uh, Hancock County Chamber website. Um, 
and I believe that's linked on the website. Yeah, we have that linked up on our webpage. It's uh, long and involved, and yeah, the easiest it's, it's, way to do is go to Good Mornings. Now, you are actually are work, working on a, uh, a website of your own. Yes, right? we will yeah. have a website. Um, we are. Um, this project is being done in partnership with the Hancock County Veterans Services Office. Okay. Um, so we'll be working with them, um, and ideally, I believe this will be a page that will be kind of an offshoot of theirs. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Sure. The second part of that is uh, the community can play. Um, so they can join our registry of live buglers. So we're looking for high school, college, or community musicians who play the trumpet or bugle. So they will able uh, be able to sign up to audition. And if selected, they will um, volunteer their time to pay their respects by playing taps to honor local veterans. Yeah. The idea, obviously, is to have multiple people so that there's always someone available uh, whenever one may be scheduled. Absolutely. And we're looking for folks all the way across Hancock County. So um, it's not just Finley local folks we're looking for. So anybody in our, our outlying areas in the county, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, as well. a good point. Uh, because again, we think of uh, funerals and Finley, Maple Grove and, and so on. Uh, but this would be for any funeral in Hancock County, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So around the uh, around the areas. And then what else is uh, part of this? Sure. So the last piece is honor. Um, we're not quite to this point yet. But once we um, send off this project, um, the community can request the, that live rendition of TAPS for their uh, Hancock County Veterans Funeral Service. And so we're going to pass this project off um, in May with a an event, um, hopefully around Memorial Day. We're still deciding. Um, and that would be the logical time. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yes. That makes sense. <laughs> yes, and so the idea then is to create that network um, of buglers, as you mentioned, so they can request that live rendition um, and have that available. Again, as we we mentioned, uh, this is an annual part of the Hancock Leadership uh, Program. Uh, at the at the conclusion of the program, you come up with a community project and then work to mm-hmm. apply what uh, you've gone been through the the past several months yep. uh, toward making this happen. Talk a little bit about what you get out of Hancock Leadership. Now that you've been through this whole thing, um, what what do you take away from it? Is it? Was it different than maybe what you expected? Yeah, I think um, I think right now, for me anyway, the, the best part I've enjoyed is um, just getting to meet. We've, we've got a 30-member class, um, and we represent organizations and businesses all the way across the county. So it's been kind of great to get to know people, to expand our network, um, and to kind of start uh, uh, learning more folks that we can lean on and rely on here in the community. So I think mm-hmm. that's been great. Sure. And um, personally, you know, I leave the class. We, ha- we meet once a month mm-hmm. um, and I leave the session just energized. You know, it's a great group of individuals. Um, they are all so passionate um, and it's, it's great. You know, we're a group of leaders. And so to, to compare and contrast, and as Tom said, you know, just make those connections um, has been wonderful. And so each session has a different topic mm-hmm. um, about, you know, the county. And we've done county infrastructure. We've done agriculture day. We've got education um, day coming up. And so just learning about those different pieces within, you know, where we live and work has been so rewarding. What has been uh, the most interesting uh, of those presentations? You mentioned learning about uh, all of the different uh, aspects of the community. Some I'm sure you were familiar with. Some maybe less so. What's really stood out to you? I mean, there's been a lot of highlight uh, activities. We we got to go up into the uh, the bell tower of the um, county courthouse down here on Main Street, and that was kind of uh, that was cool, unique. Yeah. 
Um, they took us out to the uh, water treatment plant, followed up by the sewage treatment plant. So we got to see uh, both sides. <laughs> so that's there. like one extreme to the other. Yeah, uh, that was there quite from the a bell day. tower then to the uh, sewage plant. That's kind of interesting. For me, it's all about the numbers, the facts and the figures, just learning, yeah. you know, when we did the water treatment, how many gallons we go through, mm-hmm. um, just kind of learning how long it takes for that water to get to and from mm-hmm. um, agriculture, you know, just the amount of revenue and the infrastructure, how many roads and things that they're responsible for, you know, each piece is so, um, you know, intertwined and integral, you know, to this county. And so it's cool to learn how all these things work together. And what do you take away at, at the end of the program when you graduate from Hancock Leadership? Uh, what do you take away from uh, that experience? So for me, um, it's going to be those lasting connections, um, mm. you know, Tom and I are working great together along with the rest of the class. And, you know, I foresee those friendships and those um, relationships being sustained, you know, beyond this class. I mean, so for me, I am very excited about the connections that I've made. And I would imagine uh, that uh, personal, that sense of, uh, of accomplishment, knowing, again, like with this project, the Hancock County Taps, knowing that you have uh, done something that will make a lasting impact moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I know that was one of the things we talked about when we were picking projects was mm-hmm. um, what is going to help us, what, what's, what's going to allow us to leave a legacy as we as we leave the program. And so um, I think all of us are kind of focused on that mission of let's leave a lasting legacy, something that, that will stay in this community and serve this community for a long time. And as you mentioned, uh, this one, you get pitched on a lot of, you got a lot of ideas uh, out there, but this one just kind of stood out and resonated above all else. Absolutely. So the other projects, as Tom mentioned, were all great. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually had a, a harder time deciding than I yeah. think we anticipated. <laughs> yeah. Um, once we had open discussion and, and ultimately it was what he just said, you know, we wanted to be able to have something that was just beyond the class of 2023. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so if uh, folks are interested in learning more about Hancock County Taps, again, to donate, to volunteer. Um, and to honor. And to and to honor. Yeah. Um, the Right now, the uh, uh, Chambers website uh, has all of that information, but hopefully soon. Yeah, hopefully soon there, there'll be some uh, information coming out. Um, and uh, we'll make sure if it's not there on the Chamber website, we'll we'll make sure our email address. Yeah. We do have a class email, so we'll make sure it's out there for folks. But as well. you, but people can uh, donate and uh, all of that now. Absolutely, right? yep, okay. that's live and ready to go. Okay, and uh, again, we do have that linked up at our webpage at GoodMornings.net. Again, uh, Kia Egbert and uh, Tom James with us from the uh, Hancock Leadership, uh, new Hancock Leadership class or their uh, class project, uh, Hancock County Taps. Just a, a tremendous. Uh, project uh, for veterans and fallen service members, and it's just wonderful. Thank you both for uh, taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Kind of a light day in the broken news. Not a whole lot uh, going on, but we do have a a handful of items worth uh, noting here. When a 1,200-pound horse gets into trouble, you need to call in the big guns. This is uh, from the Stamford Daily Voice. A 20-year-old horse named Tex managed to get himself stuck under a fence at his owner's property in Stamford, Connecticut. Um, because he's such a large horse, police from two different states had to be called in to free the horse. Police from uh, Connecticut and New York uh, were both called in to help uh, rescue the horse. Tex 
was found lying on his side under a split rail fence. The horse was extremely fatigued. Because of the severity of the issue, Captain Philip Hayes of the Stamford Fire Department called in a special horse rescue team from Patterson, New York. And together they removed the fencing and stabilized uh, Tex. Uh, It took roughly a half hour and 30 people to rescue the horse, who thankfully uh, will not have any uh, lasting injuries from his ordeal. Uh, Once freed, uh, Texas was escorted back to his stall. Uh, Deputy Chief uh, Matt Palmer added, quote, he was fed a variety of carrots by responding firefighters and appeared to be grateful for the assistance. Well, I would think so. Uh, It wasn't reported exactly how Tex managed to get himself stuck in that predicament in the first place, but (laughs) rescue rescuers from two different states had to be called in to rescue Tex Tex the horse. Connecticut. Thank goodness. All's well that ends well, though. Um... This from Merry Old England in Bournemouth, England. 27-year-old Luke Ansel moved into a, a new home and plunked down roughly $2,400 for a new sofa, new couch for his new home. He had it delivered, but things quint- quickly went awry when the movers tried taking the sofa up to the second floor of the house. Mr. Ansel claims he told the movers that the passageway was very tight, very narrow, and supposedly the movers assured him that they had plenty of experience in maneuvering clunky furniture in narrow spaces. So they got to work. Unfortunately, somehow the sofa got stuck, and the movers, (laughs) this is what makes it uh, kind of a crazy story, the movers just left it there, wedged in the staircase leaving Mr. Ansel to figure things out for himself. And uh, he had to uh, deal with the damage that was allegedly caused by the movers. Uh, photos of the abandoned sofa show holes in the wall, cracks in the plaster. Mr. Ansel claims the movers asked if they could take out the banister uh, on the uh, staircase to give them more room, which he declined to do. He said after the sofa was properly stuck, they said, look, we got to get back to town and tried to leave. He says they asked me to sign for the delivery, but I refused. So they just left it there and left the house anyway. <laughs> the company that delivered the sofa denies that account. They uh, dispute the account of Mr. Uh, Ansel and said he was responsible for ensuring that the sofa would fit in the space that he wanted it to fit into. It was his responsibility. The company added that Mr. Ansel uh, tried to assist in moving the couch. However, they will give him a new sofa since the thing was damaged in the attempt, and they will pay for the damages to his home as a gesture of goodwill. I read that story, and I said, wasn't there a Friends episode that was suspiciously similar to that? Pivot! Pivot! You just see that Uh, life imitating art there. Uh, Let's see. Federal agents have launched Operation Nightingale. This is actually a scary story. It is an investigation into a massive fake nursing diploma scheme. Warrants have been issued in New York, New Jersey, Texas, and Florida. And so far, 25 individuals have been charged 
accused of selling fake nursing degree diplomas for $15,000 each. In all, more than 7,600 fake nursing diplomas supposedly been issued by these three Florida-based schools. The scheme occurred during a time when the nation was experiencing a shortage of nurses. Investigators are now trying to find these workers. It is unclear if they knew they were paying for fraudulent paperwork or if they were also being duped. It's a little scary, isn't it? 7,600 fake nurses with uh, diplomas out there that aren't real. That's kind of scary. Let's hope they get to the bottom of that very soon. And finally, in the broken news this morning, officials with the San Diego Zoo are seeking recognition in the Guinness Book of World Records for a Pacific pocket mouse believed to be the oldest in the world at the ripe old age of nine. The San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance said a Pacific pocket mouse named Pat, named in honor of actor Patrick Stewart, is believed to be the oldest living mouse in the world at the age of nine years and five months. Pat was born at the zoo on July 12, 2013, and the Wildlife Alliance said it will hold a special event um, next week to celebrate the mouse's longevity and attempt to secure the Guinness World Record title of oldest living mouse in human care. A world record adjudicator is slated to attend the birthday party event to verify Pat's age. I don't know how you do that for a mouse, but uh, the Pacific pocket mouse is the smallest species of mouse in North America, and the zoo established a breeding and reintroduction program for the species in 2012 to help, help offset population declines. And I suppose that's a good way to start, is by making sure that they live forever. Uh, the oldest mouse ever recorded by Guinness was named Fritzy and died in 1985 at the age of seven years and seven months. So Pat's got this thing, this record sewn up. I mean, it's beat all the way around. That's pretty impressive there. So the important news to know this morning. There you go, today's uh, broken news report, an update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. And yet another major brand just announced it's halting all social media advertising. The two most overused and abused words in advertising are truth and trust. They are the two most precious commodities for all brands, big and small, as an advertiser. You have to trust your partners to protect your brand's truth using the media consumer's trust. Radio, it's on. This message provided by WFIN. Time now for your daily download. The numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. And how about this? More than one-third of adults, 35% of American adults, admit that they still have at least one bill on their parents' tab. This is a new poll of 2,000 American adults. They're the top three expenses that their parents still pay for are rent, groceries, and utilities. Now, these are adults of all ages uh, in the poll, but for millennials in particular, and those would be adults between their mid-20s and early 40s, for millennials, 
24% say that their parents still cover all or part of their rent. Wow. About three quarters of those in the poll, 72% say that they are planning on taking those bills on themselves within the next two years. But 30% admit that it is their intention to ride their parents' financial coattails until they are told otherwise. <laughs> until, they're, until their parents cut them off, they are more than happy to have their parents uh, cover their bills. 30%. Uh, as for why, the most common reason given, 31%, say that they're trying to save money. Uh, and, and many say that it's cheaper to stay on their parents' plan for things like insurance and cell phone service and so on. It's kind of interesting. I, I found that uh, to be uh, very interesting in my wife and I's situation. Uh, we've kind of come full circle on this. My wife and I are actually on our son's cell phone plan. <laughs> now. <laughs> he is not paying for it. We're paying for it. But uh, as a military veteran, he gets a discount on his cell phone plan. So he put us on on his plan. We pay our share. Uh, but hey, it saves 20 to 30 bucks a month. Uh, nothing to shake a stick at there. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting. We've come full circle in our particular situation. But I thought this was uh, really interesting uh, in this survey, despite the fact that not that they are not managing all of their expenses that their their parents are still paying for at least one of their monthly expenses the survey also found 85% of those in the survey consider themselves to be financially responsible <laughs> they just have a different kind of definition of that Heather Klo is with us uh, on the line this morning, the Marathon Center for the Performing Arts, to talk about uh, upcoming shows, programming in the month of February. And uh, right out of the gate, uh, Heather, want to mention uh, the two big shows in the month of uh, February in the main stage series. Fiddler on the Roof is right around the corner here, and uh, this... We, we've talked about it uh, in the past. Uh, a lot of folks have seen uh, Fiddler on the Roof, but this is uh, kind of a, a fresh take on it or a, uh, an updated take on the uh, classic show. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to put it. Um, it was just the tour that was just on Broadway, and it has all the things you remember still very traditional, but they are paying homage to the roots of the show. So there's some Yiddish in it that wasn't in it before. Um, and it's it opened. It had great reviews on Broadway. I'm really excited to bring it to to Finley. I, I know that that's always there. There's some risk associated with that when you take something that is a classic that everyone knows and loves and has been around for eons, and then try and freshen it up a little bit. It's always uh, a bit of an unknown how audiences are going to react. But as you said, uh, the the reviews and the audience reaction has been nothing but positive here. Yeah, absolutely. They were really, I mean, it's a musical about tradition, right? So they didn't change anything too big. Right. It's not like it's set in like 1980s London or anything like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, 
but they they did try to tribute, you know, to to pay attention to the real roots of it. And like I said, there's a little bit of Yiddish, mm-hmm. and um, it's just a little more traditional, I would say. Yeah, which which is kind of interesting because uh, I would imagine that this is probably true uh, uh, true to the original creators that maybe when this opened uh, all those years ago maybe it wouldn't have gone over well. I mean, this might have been right. something that they had hoped to do, but maybe the timing wasn't right when it originally uh, debuted. So I can imagine that, you know, given uh, the changing sensibilities and such, uh, this may actually be closer to the original vision. That's just, really a great point. I hadn't thought of it like that, but I'm sure, I'm, I bet it is. I mean, they, yeah. you know, when it was created, I'm sure they wanted to, to honor the, the people that it was right. about. Yeah. Uh, so that is coming up on the 7th, and there are still tickets available uh, for that, right? There are. They're going quickly, but yes, there are still some left. <laughs> okay. February 7th is the date for Fiddler on the Roof. And then uh, later on, at the, at the end of the month of February, a celebration of the music of Aretha Franklin. Yeah, so we are doing um, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, the show. Um, it's it's like a Broadway-style concert, so there's different women singing Aretha Franklin music from out her, throughout her career, you know, at different points in her career, um, all incredible singers. But it also talks a lot about her civil rights work, um, you know, her uh, women, you know, work with getting women respected in the industry and her personal life as well. She had a, a pretty rocky personal life at times, and it, it really is talking about her story through her music. So this is more than just a tribute concert. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's definitely, I mean, it, it's not a Broadway show, but it's a Broadway-style concert. So it's it's more like those jukebox mu- musicals. Okay. Um then it's it's not like people dressed up like Aretha Franklin singing her music. It, yeah. it's definitely there's a storyline, and um, you know it, it's sort of a combination of the two. <laughs> yeah, uh, it actually does say. I mean, the uh, the write up on it says it is a tribute concert experience. So it's more than right. like you said, just a uh, just a tribute band uh, that we may be familiar with. So something a little bit deeper than that. And again, tickets are still available for this, but it is one not to be missed. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, every time I hear Aretha Franklin on the radio recently, I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot she did that one. Um, and and the you know, if you listen to it, the the singers that are playing, you know, singing her music are amazing. Uh, truly, an American treasure. So uh, again, a great uh, show. If you're looking for a date night, this would be a, a great one too. And uh, tickets for both of those shows uh, are uh, still available. Um, you also have, and I, I just want to mention this, I know it's sold out, the Dueling Pianos uh, event, that's actually over at Alexandria's here in about a week yeah. and a half. Uh, I know it's sold out, but um, we'll, we'll mention it because if you've got tickets and you find you can't use them, don't just sit on them because you've got a waiting list, right? We do, yeah. Dueling Pianos is so popular. We win it so much fun. And yeah, that's the 10th and 11th, and they are both sold out. But definitely give us a call. It never hurts to put your name on the waiting list. It doesn't cost anything. And then if something happens, it happens. You never know. You You never know. Uh, A couple of other things that you have going on uh, in in terms of of programming. Uh, There is a a magic camp coming up uh, here in a couple of weeks uh, for kids. What This is between ages 8 and 13. Tell us more about this. Yeah, so it's a, a school vacation camp. 
and it's led by Kevin Spencer, who is a touring professional music uh, magician. And you come and you spend the days and learn how to do magic, and then there's a little show at the end. Um, we have kids that do it every year and really missed it when we weren't able to have it because of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun, and you learn some great magic. Who doesn't like magic? Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, how do, uh, how do folks sign up for this, or how do we sign our kids up for this? Yeah, you can do it on the website. Um, if you go to the mcpa.org and click on it, it'll have registration. Or you can give us a call at 419-423-2787, and we can sign you up. And uh, you can get more information about all kinds of uh, programming for youth uh, that happens at the Marathon Center. Uh, again, it's a whole other part of what you do within the community. We talk about the, the big shows and, and all of that, but uh, a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes every single day. Absolutely. We have art clubs, visual art clubs, performing art clubs. Um, we right in the middle of Moana Jr. for the Youth Theater Um so we're, we have kids in and out here all the time. <laughs> um, and a couple of other things to mention in terms of performances. Later this week, you have uh, the latest in the Live at Arms series. Yeah, we have Chicken Wire Empire. They're a Midwestern bluegrass band, um, and they will be here on Thursday. And okay. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Live at Arms shows are fantastic. It's small, it's intimate, and the, the music is great. And then uh, this is early March, so it's about a month from now, but I'll mention it now because it's uh, at the beginning of March, March 2nd, um, and that is the uh, Winnie the Pooh stage show, which is great yeah. for the entire family. It is, yep. It's a 6.30 performance, uh, sort of like we did our Rudolph. Um, it, yeah, it's puppets. Um, it's beautiful. It's a new musical, um, so there's some familiar music, but they, they have a lot of great other music, and know all your favorite characters and just come and enjoy poo <laughs> and, and who doesn't love poo i mean this oh, would yeah. be great for uh, for all ages so a lot of things going on in the month of february and into early march at the marathon center for the performing arts and more information about all of those uh programs and uh shows and taking information at your website right Exactly, mcpa.org. Very good. Again, uh, Heather Klo with us, Executive Director of the Marathon Center for the Performing Arts. Heather, thanks very much for the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's great entertainment uh, here in the uh, coming month or so, uh, right in our own backyard. Truly a gem of downtown. And that will finish up our podcast for today. Thanks again to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage, and that is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, moves by the FDA last week signal a pivot in its approach to managing the threat of COVID moving forward. An evolving strategy that was not unexpected, but some are raising doubts about its effectiveness and its timing. We'll take a closer look. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.